Well, we're currently in the season of the church calendar known as Advent. Advent means coming or arrival, and it's a season devoted to waiting. We're waiting for Christmas, which commemorates the first arrival of Jesus Christ. But we're also waiting, just as we do throughout the year, but in a special way during Advent for the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming. So Advent is a time when churches typically study Bible passages that have something to do with Jesus' first coming or his second coming. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to study Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, which is one of the earliest passages in the Bible predicting the future arrival of a great king who will rule over all nations. Our second Bible reading this morning is Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And that is where it should have ended. There seems to be another line that has crept in from a passage we had in the previous week mentally erase that line on page 11, the passage ends, his teeth whiter than milk. Sorry, that's, that's my proofreading mistake there on page 11. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's uh, pray before we look more closely at that Bible passage. Let's pray for God to be with us. Please bow your head. Heavenly Father, we learn from the first chapter of the Bible that when the world was formless and chaotic, you brought order to it by your word. Please, this morning, would you similarly bring order through your word to our often formless lives and our often chaotic hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just over a week ago, the composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim died at the age of 91. Among his other world-renowned musicals, his very first Broadway musical is probably the most famous of all, West Side Story, which opened on Broadway in 1957. As it happens, the second movie version of West Side Story is due to be released later this week. You may already know that the West Side 
in the title of the musical is the Upper West Side, where we are today. Back in the 1950s, the Upper West Side was a tough working class neighborhood where many immigrants chose to settle. West Side Story is about the Jets and the Sharks, two rival gangs. The Jets are white and the Sharks are Puerto Rican. In the musical, Tony, who's the best friend of the leader of the Jets, falls in love with Maria, who's the sister of the leader of the Sharks. You don't need to have seen West Side Story to imagine the problems caused by their different allegiances. For Tony and Maria, their love transcends their allegiances to the Jets, in Tony's case, and the Sharks, in Maria's case. But without giving too much away, Tony and Maria do not find it easy to free themselves from their different gangs. West Side Story still feels relevant 65 years after it was written. Perhaps not so much to the Upper West Side itself in the way that it once was, but to America as a whole, which is increasingly divided politically and culturally. It often feels like there are two Americas, and in the past 10 years, those two Americas seem to have moved still further apart from each other. Many people in our country are intensely conscious of their tribal allegiance, just like the Jets and the Sharks of West Side Story. The Bible speaks directly to this question of allegiance. It doesn't call on us to get rid of our tribal allegiances completely. It doesn't call on us to put an end to our affection for tribe or heritage or nation. But it does call on us to overcome our differences by giving our allegiance to one king from one tribe. The message of today's Bible passage is that there is nothing more important for you than to give your allegiance to the Lion of Judah. The same is true for your friends, family members, and neighbors. There's nothing more important for them than to give their allegiance to the Lion of Judah. Today's passage is taken from Jacob's farewell speech to his 12 sons. In Genesis 49, Jacob, who is also known as Israel, is on his deathbed. And he has something to say to each of his 12 sons, from Reuben, his firstborn, to Benjamin, his lastborn. There's a verse that comes after the end of Jacob's speech that sums up the purpose of this deathbed speech. Genesis 49 verse 28 says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. So that tells you what's going on in Genesis chapter 49. Jacob is blessing his twelve sons, and his blessings have predictive power. They're not what Jacob himself wishes will happen. They're what he prophesies will happen. The writer of Genesis, speaking for God himself, says that each blessing was appropriate 
suitable for each of Jacob's sons. That verse from later in Genesis 49 also tells us that Jacob's sons represent the tribes that will come from them. Here's the verse again. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. The writer of Genesis toggles between the tribe descending from each son and the son himself. That's something we find throughout the Bible. The Bible says things about a founding father that apply to the whole group descending from him. From the Bible's point of view, all those descendants are sort of stored up within the body of the chief ancestor. One example of that way of thinking is the new, uh, in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, which says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Well, now we've dealt with those preliminaries, it's time for us to dive into the passage itself. We're going to split it up into three sections, verses 8 and 9, then verse 10, and then verses 11 and 12. In each of those sections, there's a central image. First a lion, then a scepter, then a vine. And so we'll move through the sermon image by image, beginning with the lion. The lion. Please look down with me to verse 9. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? We're used to thinking of the lion as the king of the jungle, chief of all the beasts. And that idea goes back a very long way. Proverbs chapter 30 describes the lion as mightiest among beasts. It says, the lion does not retreat from anything. And it compares a lion walking by itself to the way that a king walks when his army is with him. By likening Judah to a lion, Jacob is signaling that Jacob's tribe, that Judah's tribe will be the strongest of all the 12 tribes. It will be chief among them. All of that fits with what Jacob has just told Judah in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. When you factor in the Bible's toggling between founding father and descending group, Verse 8 is another way of saying that Judah will be chief among the 12 tribes. Now that is a twist in the book of Genesis. Up to this point, it's looked as if Joseph will be preeminent among Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob is giving this deathbed speech in Egypt. He and all his sons only ended up in Egypt because that's where Joseph was. Joseph had become prime minister of all Egypt, and his management of Egypt's agriculture had saved hundreds of thousands of people from starvation during a seven-year famine. Everyone in that region knows who Joseph is at the time Jacob is speaking. 
if they know about his 11 brothers at all, it's only because they're Joseph's brothers. Joseph is the one whose biography gets onto the New York Times bestseller list. His brothers only get a few paragraphs in the early life chapter of that biography. What's more, Joseph had received visions in his dreams that foretold his superiority over his brothers. In one dream, in one dream Joseph's sheaf of grain stands up in a field and his brother's 11 sheaths of grain gather round it and bow down to it. In another dream, 11 stars representing the 11 brothers bow down to Joseph. And we're meant to see those dreams as God-given, not Joseph's wild fantasies. Because in the book of Genesis, Joseph can successfully interpret dreams. That's actually how he rises to power in Egypt. By the time of Jacob's deathbed speech, those bowing down dreams have been fulfilled. Joseph's 11 brothers all bowed down before him, like the sheaves of grain bowing down to Joseph's sheaf, like the 11 stars bowing down to Joseph in his dreams. That has happened. It happened when they came to Egypt to buy food during the famine. So it must have come as a great shock to everyone present when they hear Jacob say to Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. The unexpected raising up of Judah above his brothers here in Genesis 49 reveals God's hand at work. Judah's elevation doesn't have a natural human explanation. It overturns human expectations. Judah wasn't the firstborn son. Judah wasn't prime minister of all Egypt, where they all are at this point in time. It shows God at work, God having his way, God working his purposes out. Earlier in Genesis, something similar happened with Jacob himself when he and his twin brother Esau were in their mother Rebekah's womb. God told Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. One shall be stronger than the other, God told her. The older shall serve the younger. Jacob was the younger. And that wasn't the way things usually worked in the ancient world. And it wasn't what their father Isaac wanted. But it was what God wanted. It was God's decision. It was his decree. Esau the older would serve Jacob the younger. And it's the same here in Genesis 49. Against expectations, Judah is singled out as chief among the tribes of Israel. But why should the superiority of that one tribe among the 12 tribes of this ancient nation matter to us today? That question brings us to the next section of this predictive blessing. The main image that goes with this second section which is just verse 10, is the scepter, the scepter. Let's look down, please, to verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff 
from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Legend has it that a sword called Excalibur was stuck in a rock for hundreds of years. It was said that whoever could pull the sword out from the rock would be England's rightful king. Countless men gripped Excalibur's hilt without success. They simply could not make the sword budge from the rock. And a man named Arthur stepped up to the rock. He pulled out Excalibur at his very first attempt. The sword had been waiting for the rightful king to come. It slid easily out of the rock when Arthur arrived. The story of Excalibur is just a fable, just a myth. Here in Genesis 49, verse 10, we find something similar said about a king from the tribe of Judah, and this is no myth. This is gloriously true. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, another way of saying the scepter, from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. Until he comes to whom it belongs. Jacob says the tribe of Judah will hold the scepter. Scepter is a ceremonial staff or rod, sometimes made of gold or silver. Scepters are a symbol of royal power. Reigning monarchs still have them today. And so this is Jacob's way of saying that kings will come from the tribe of Judah. But like that sword Excalibur, the royal scepter of the tribe of Judah is playing a waiting game. It's waiting for the arrival of one king. There's a sense in which that scepter doesn't truly belong to anyone else. It's as if none of the other kings from Judah truly deserve to hold it. It's only that one future king. Already his greatness is beginning to shine out of the page. And how much more when we read the final line of verse 10, which says, the obedience of the nations is his. One king ruling over all the other kings. One king gaining control of every single nation in the entire world. Now, this grand expectation doesn't come out of nowhere. In fact, it fits perfectly with the promises that God has already made earlier in the book of Genesis. As early as chapter 3, verse 15, the serpent who tempted Eve is told he will be crushed by one of Eve's descendants. That promise is a gleam of hope in the darkness for Adam and Eve, the only gleam of hope for them. They're about to be exiled from Eden, God's perfect garden. They will be thrust into a fallen world. But God says one of their descendants will trample on that evil being who was the source of all their troubles. Genesis 3.15 is a prediction of ultimate victory for the human race thanks to one triumphant human. 
The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations will be his. Genesis 3.15 and verse 10 in our passage today are like a pair of rhyming lines in a poem. They both speak of one great human champion. Then in the time of Abraham, about 10 chapters later in the book of Genesis from that first promise in Genesis 3.15, God makes additional promises. God tells Abraham that he'll become the father of a nation and through that nation, all of the world's nations will be blessed. Once again, that has an excellent fit with verse 10 in our passage today. How will one nation bless all the nations? By producing one great ruler who will reign over all of them. So Genesis 49 verse 10 is like a puzzle piece slotting in among other pieces that have already created a space for it. The Genesis 49 puzzle piece reveals that humanity's champion will be a king from the tribe of Judah. And he will rule over every nation. More information will come later in the Old Testament. But this is still the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Even by the end of the first book of the Bible, there are enough pieces of the puzzle in place to show us what the finished puzzle is going to look like. Well, it's time for us to move on to the third and last section of the prophecy, verses 11 and 12, remembering that the final line printed there in the second Bible reading is from an old second Bible reading and is not part of this passage. The main image in this section of the prophecy is the vine along with the fruit and wine that the vine tree produces. That's our third heading, the vine. I think we can all agree that the first two sections of the prophecy were fairly easy to understand. We can quickly grasp the connection between the mighty lion and Judah's leading position among the other tribes. It's the same with the information we're given about that future ruler in the middle section. The obedience of the nations is his. Got it. Message coming through loud and clear. And yet this final section is different. Poetry takes over. Every line is suggestive. This final section is meant to stir up more of an emotional response to the coming king. Kings can seem distant. It's hard to relate to them. But in these final lines, we're brought close to that great future king. The aim of these lines is to clinch our allegiance to him. By this point in the prophecy, our heads can see that it makes sense to give our allegiance to this future king, but our hearts may not yet be on board. The closing lines of the prophecy are meant to win our hearts. The coming king is not just a king to honour, he's a king to love. Let's now carefully, carefully examine these final lines. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. 
He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Wine flows throughout these closing verses, 11 and 12. You may not be a wine drinker yourself. You may have good personal reasons to keep your distance from wine, but I hope you don't mind other people enjoying it. The Bible recognizes the dangers of excessive wine consumption, but generally speaking, the Bible is very positive about wine. Wine stands for joy and celebration and togetherness. Ask a wine lover about their favorite wines, and 10 minutes later, they'll still be talking to you enthusiastically. Jacob wants everyone to know that the coming king will be the wine-giving king. His parties will be joyful parties where exceptional wine keeps flowing. Verse 11 has an almost comical way of making that point. It says of the king, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. What does a donkey do when it's tied to a vine laden with choice grapes? That's a real question. Anyone want to answer? What does a donkey do when tied to a grapevine? He, it eats the grapes. Thank you very much, Laura. That is exactly what the donkey will do. And that tells us that the coming king will have so much wine, such extensive vineyards, that he can happily let his donkey eat its fill. It's similar with the next line. He'll wash his garments in wine. The point isn't that he'll actually convert his apartment building's washing machines to fill up with Cabernet Sauvignon instead of water. The point is he'll have so much wine that if he wanted to wash his clothes in it, he could. One Bible commentator has said about verse 11, the man who can without a thought bind his mount to a vine and wash his garments in wine is living in paradise. The final verse of the prophecy speaks of the beauty of the king. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Wine and milk are good things, but the king's eyes and teeth surpass wine and milk in their attractiveness. It's a way of saying that those who look at the king will see glorious things. I hope you're drawn to this king. I hope you're falling in love with him all over again. Because if you're someone who trusts in Jesus, you already know this king. You've already seen his beauty. You already know that he brings joy to his people like the joy brought by the best wine. According to John's gospel, the first miracle that Jesus performed was to turn the water in six stone water jars into the very finest wine. John tells us that each jar held two or three measures. And when you convert that ancient quantity into modern-day wine bottles, that's up to 908 bottles. Jesus wanted that party in Cana in Galilee to be a joyful party, 
And he also wanted to reveal his own glory as the king of kings. The one who fulfills this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49, along with all the other biblical prophecies about the Messiah. Those who looked at Jesus throughout his ministry saw glorious things. They saw the beauty of the king. They saw him heal the sick, give sight to the blind, feed the hungry, touch untouchables, raise the dead, and live without sin. He proved himself to be both man and God. He's the one who will bring humanity out of this fallen world with its thorns and thistles and into the new heavens and the new earth, a place of abundance that is no longer afflicted by God's curse. When the prophet Amos describes that future world, in Amos chapter 9, he says, New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. King Jesus looks ahead to that future world when he tells his disciples in Luke chapter 22, from now on I will certainly not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. But to make that future world happen, Jesus first had to finish the work he was sent to do. Listen to what he goes on to say to his disciples immediately after he's told them about drinking of the fruit of the vine in the kingdom of God. This is Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. Then he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after they had eaten, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The wine Jesus and his disciples drank at the Last Supper represented the blood he would pour out on the following day. The king who gives his people wine poured out his own wine-like blood so that we could live in his eternal kingdom where new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. He had to pour out his blood. He had to die in our place so that our sin could receive just punishment and we could be forgiven. If you haven't yet received that forgiveness, if you're not trusting in King Jesus, please give your allegiance to him. There is nothing more important for you than to give your allegiance to the Lion of Judah so that your sins will be forgiven. Back in verse 8, Jacob says the tribe of Judah will have enemies. Judah's hand will be on the neck of his enemies, we're told in verse 8. That's a vision of lethal judgment. Think of what happens after David has killed Goliath. We're told in that chapter, 1 Samuel 17, that David cuts off Goliath's head. 
That's what it means in the Bible to have your hand on the neck of your enemy. Those who oppose the king will be destroyed by the king. Those who resist his global rule will be conquered. Please don't walk toward your own defeat. Fall into line with King Jesus and his purposes. Give your allegiance to him. For those of us who have already made Jesus our king, this passage should stir up fresh desire to keep on following him. Following Jesus may well mean you won't fit in comfortably with the tribes of this world, just as Tony and Maria's love for each other in West Side Story transcends their tribal allegiance, our love for King Jesus must transcend all the other allegiances we have in this world. When our love for Jesus makes us feel as if we don't belong, that's a sign that things are going well for us spiritually. It's a sign of good health in your Christian life when your allegiance to Jesus makes you long for his return. When you will live with him in a world made new. Christian, you have a great king, a lovely king, an eternal king. He deserves your allegiance and it is good for you both in this world and how much more in the next to give him your undying allegiance. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us a king. We thank you that he is one of us, a human like us, and yet he is also divine, your son. He came from heaven. He meets our need. He is our champion, our victor. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would strengthen our allegiance to Jesus. Help us to fall in love with him all over again. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would draw near to him. Show us ways in which we might be rebelling against him and help us by the power of your Spirit to bring everything in our lives under his rule. We thank you that he met our greatest need through his death on the cross when he poured out his blood for our sake, that we might be forgiven. We pray all these things in his great name. Amen.